0: My name is Jesse, as Chris said, and I am the intern here at Redeemer, Um, and I lead the Midtown Community Group, um, and I also get to lead the youth group that we have here, and it's just a pleasure to be up here and get to hang out with you all. It's cool that we get this building, right? Yeah, so I can't believe that we have finally made it to the last few weeks of summer. It's crazy that we I uh, only have two more weeks in the Abide series after we finish up First John today, and if you've noticed, the pace in Bloomington is starting to pick up again. Most schools have started up, and IU's fall semester is coming very fast. Uh, I now consider myself a townie of sorts. I've been here for five years, so this is a bittersweet time for townies. Uh, it's great to see all the energy come, come bursting back into Bloomington, uh, but the peace of the summer in the city is going to leave us soon. It's an uncertain time. Um, We're not sure what the new semester will bring, the kind of atmosphere that we're going to have. Is IU going to be good at any sport at all? (laughs) Uh, I think it's safe to say that this is not the only time, though, where uncertainty is all around us. We live in an uncertain age. There's a lot of chaos going on in the world. Um... There's a lot of doubt and a lot of skepticism. This is especially true when it comes to claims about God. Claims about anything that's outside of our quantitative physical world. For those professing to follow Jesus Christ, the climate in regards to what people think of Christians doesn't seem to be getting any better. The age of skepticism and doubt makes it hard to follow. But these challenges are absolutely nothing new. John wrote the letter that we have been studying to encourage Christians who are being fed false messages and doubt. The struggles have been around for centuries. So for weeks we've been journeying through 1 John. Remember that John wrote this letter to believers who were going through a time of division. Most likely the believers he is is writing to were separating from an early Gnostic thought, an early religious mysticism that believed in salvation through knowledge, That uh, they believe that redemption would come through just knowing facts and affirming the divine light that is in your soul. So, John wrote this letter not to specifically give a defense against this early Gnosticism, but to encourage and set the true believers back on track, to remind them of what they know for sure, to remind them of where they stand in Christ's death and his resurrection. To call them back to real and true doctrine. Obedient living in a deep devotion. Over the past few months we've learned much about how we can be sure that we're in Christ. We know that profession and practice go hand in hand. That's kind of a main theme in 1 John. You know that you can't claim one thing and then do another. You can't profess Christ and then hate your brother or not be loving to people. So today we get to the end of the letter. In John at the end of his epistle, does a great job of summarizing his purpose of the letter. And the purpose is that above all else, we know Christ. And that we are aware of the consequent fruit that comes from our knowing him. So John is dead set on us being 100% sure that we can know God, that we can be certain of our stance in Christ, no matter what anyone else says. Today we can have an assurance. A rock solid assurance in the midst of a world that's constantly changing so that gets us to our text today if you'll stand with me and open your bibles to first john 5 13 through 21 that's on page 897 or 708 depending on what uh esv bible you have it's the gray ones that are maybe on the floor right now uh but if you don't have a bible then please take that as a gift There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for uh, the beautiful day. I thank you for your abundant provision um, in this building that we get to gather in. Um, I thank you for everybody here. I just pray that uh, you speak today through any inadequacies I might have as a preacher, I just pray that uh, you work and that you touch people's lives. Um, and I just thank you for uh, the great journey we've had through First John, and I pray that um, we learn much today. And I uh, thank you most for Christ and for sending him to die for us and to, r- to rise again so that we might have hope in him. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, you can be seated. So before we get moving through the text, I want to lay out what it is that I want to get across this morning. Uh, I like to kind of just throw it out there so you know where we're going. First, believers in Christ can be certain of their salvation. Next, we can be certain we are heard in our prayers. And lastly, that we can be certain of our standing and our freedom in Christ. So first, we can be certain of our salvation. Verse 13 says this, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So there we have it. That is the purpose of the letter. John understands that the doubt that the believers are facing, he understands the climate his beloved children are in, and that they're told they are, they are wrong in what they believe, and they can't be sure of their salvation. But John argues otherwise. In the Gospel of John... In chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, he tells us why he wrote that gospel, so that people might believe. He lays out the facts of the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be Christ. He tells us of the miracles he performed, the prophecies that he fulfilled, and of his death, and most importantly, his resurrection. John says that once you reckon with who Christ claimed to be, and are grasped by the grace of God who sent Jesus to die for sinners so that we can be right before him, you can't help but believe. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. He gave an eyewitness account so people believe and find life. He wants his hearers to know. John's purpose that uh, in his writings are in four stages. He wants them to hear and in hearing to believe and in believing to live and in living to know. So knowing God is the greatest thing. And now when we're talking about knowing God, we're not simply talking about knowing about God, meaning we're not just talking about knowledge about Him, understanding the various theological ins and outs, and being able to spit out facts about God. We are talking about knowing of God. Seeing and tasting Him for who He is, understanding what God has done for you in Christ, and letting that take hold of you. The more books you read, the more Seminary classes that you take does not help you to know God. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he says this, Interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing Him. I suspect that the best analogy is a relationship kind of between two people. Uh, You can know about someone, maybe what they like, what they dislike, What their day even looks like, what they do, their character. But just knowing about them is not the same as sitting down with them and talking to them, learning of what makes them the way they are. Think of someone who maybe is just an acquaintance in your life. Now, think of someone who is maybe your best friend or your spouse if you're married. You may know a lot about your acquaintance, but it doesn't even compare to your best friend. Or your spouse to know of God is the greatest thing for those who have been gripped by what Christ has done we can be certain of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ at this point those who know of God in this way may say well yes I believe and I'm living and I know but to say that we can have assurance of salvation that is a presumptuous claim we just can't be certain on this side of history But for those who believe in Christ, there does not need to be any exclusion between humility and certainty. John Stott, in his commentary on 1 John, says this, If God's revealed purpose is not only that we should hear, believe, and live, but also that we should know, presumptuousness lies in doubting his word, not in trusting it. So he's saying that if you hear, believe, and are living in Christ, then you can know. You can know that you stand secure forever. John does not want you to go through life doubting. He wants you to be sure, to rest in the fact that Christ took the full cup of wrath for your sins on the cross and rose again to save you to him for his glory and your joy. God has revealed himself to us in Christ in his written words so that we might know him. So we get it that we can be certain of our salvation and that knowing God is the greatest thing that we can know. But what does this mean for us? John spends the remainder of the letter kind of hashing out some of the practical uh, things that come from this. So he tells us of the boldness and certainties we can have. And the first thing that he mentions is the boldness we have in prayer. We can be bold in our prayers. Verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So, we know that we have assurance assurance of salvation in Christ, and, and if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. So there is a qualifying statement in this verse, though, for God to hear us. And that is that we must pray according to his will. But what does this mean? It does not mean that we must somehow figure out the future plans of God that he has for his people. But rather that we must pray according to what we know God's will is for his people. What he has revealed in his written word and in Jesus Christ. So prayer is a way for us to commune with God and to align ourselves to his will, not the other way around. Prayer doesn't exist so we can impose our will upon God. I'm going to go ahead and just make another certain claim, and that's that we can't overpower God's will. We can't just say, I don't really like that, so I think I'll do this. Nor can we bend his will to ours. Typically, I think this is the way that most of us might uh, approach, approach this. We twist his will to justify maybe wrong behavior in ourselves. I'm guilty of this. Um, At times I have an agenda and I find it rather ironic that God's agenda seems very similar to mine. For example, uh, I'm trying to improve on how I help out around my apartment. Um, I understand that it's God's will for me to be selfless and love my wife and put her before me to love her sacrificially, to love her as Christ loved the church and lay down my life for her. But I also understand that it is God's will for me to be joyful in Him. So it's easy for, easy for me to discern very quickly when I come home that maybe it's God's will for me to chill out. <laughs> to flip on a documentary, which is what I enjoy doing in my nighttime. I watch, I'm watch. i a nerd. I watch documentaries. Uh, but maybe then put my feet up and relax and, and just relax in the blessing of our apartment, right? And I neglect the fact that there's dishes to be done, uh, clothes to be put away, dinner to be prepared. It's a silly analogy, I, I know that, but you get the point. We often secretly know what we would like and we pray with our end in mind and not God's, even if our end is not necessarily a bad thing. The fact that we neglect to even ponder and pray through God's will for how we spend, even our evenings can be wrong. We owe him the glory even when we think it's our time. So prayer exists so we can submit to God's will and commune with him. That's the goal of prayer, isn't it? And for some reason, in, in God's will, he, he wants us to talk with him in prayer, and he likes when we come to him with requests. So he, he says in verse 15 that we know we are heard and we have the requests we have asked of him. Does this mean everything that we request happens exactly how we want? No. This verse needs to be understood in the greater context of Scripture and what it says on prayer. We need to pray in faith, and in patience, and in obedience, and in submission to God's greater wisdom. We pray to know God more and more. We pray to know God more, and the more that we know God, the more we want to pray. So J.I. Packer, in the same book I mentioned earlier, Knowing God He says this, men, talking about humans, who know their God are before anything else men who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory come to expression is in their prayers. So when something comes up, the first thing we ought to do is seek communion with God. In verses 16 through 17, we see an example of this. It says this, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, we shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So it's kind of a confusing of a section. I was not thrilled when I got it. (laughs) Uh, I was like, seriously, Chris, that? Uh, but, But John is writing here about people who are who are backsliding, they're kind of falling back from the faith, right? They're saying one thing and they're doing another. He says that when we see our brothers and sisters in sin, we should pray and God will give them life. Interesting, isn't it? That when we see if someone's struggling in sin, the thing that we're supposed to do is pray. It doesn't say when you see them in sin, go attack them, go hit them with the Bible or something. No, or whisper behind their back. It says, the first thing we do is we pray for God to grip their hearts and to re-energize them in love and in life in him. But then typically it is a good thing for us to lovingly confront and care for them. All right, but what is the deal about the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death? The original hearers of the letter no doubt understood what John was saying, but over the 2,000 years, of course, people have debated what does this mean. So I'm going to try to lay it out for you to the best of my understanding. Um, And there are a couple different things that it could mean. First, it's been argued that it is referring to a specific sin, a sin that requires the penalty of death. This interpretation is what eventually led to uh, the Catholic Church's uh, um, understanding on, on mortal and venial sins. So this is the idea that some sins are completely unforgivable. Those are the mortal sins. And then the lesser sins are venial, and that you can be forgiven for them. I don't think that this is what John was going for because he has a pretty good understanding of God's grace, and he knows that the grace is so amazing that once we are in Christ, there is nothing that can separate us. Also, to the worst of the worst of sinners, there is still grace. Nobody's so far off that they can be out of Christ's reach. So, another interpretation is that this is referring to apostasy. We talked about this a few weeks back. This is the idea that the sin leading to death is someone who was in Christ, has a total renunciation of the faith, and a denial of Christ. But can a Christian who is born of God fall away like that? No, I don't think so. Remember that in this part, John is talking about praying for Christians. So once you are in Christ, you cannot deny that saving power. Those who do renounce Christ, if they have professed to be Christians, John would say that they probably never truly knew him. We learned about this back in chapter 2, verse 19. I'm going to read it real quick. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that I might be plain that they are all not, that they all are not of us. So what he's saying there is it's probably not apostasy either. So the third alternative, and the one I think makes the absolute most sense, is that, the sin he's talking about here is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This can be found in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 32. I'm not going to read it all, but here it's the picture where um, the Pharisees are rejecting willingly known truth. They have just seen Jesus perform miracles, and they say that he's doing those by the power of the devil. Even though Jesus constantly claimed he did them by the power of God. So this is the sin that leads to death that John's talking about. He's saying that when someone is completely denying Jesus Christ as God's Son and denying the power of the Holy Spirit that he grants, that's the sin that leads to death. And it's more of a hard issue, not a direct, like, action. So essentially what's going on in these verses, if I can sum it up, is John is saying that our, our first reaction to something should be to pray. And in this context, they're experiencing these divisions, and he's telling them to recognize brothers and sisters who believe in Christ that may be struggling in sin and to pray that God grants them life so they can be free from the grip of sin they find themselves in. So we know that on this side of Christ's return, we're always going to struggle with sin. And our first response should be to plead with God that we can be free from this this sin that, that, that God does not like. So thankfully, those who affirm Jesus Christ and know him, we can, we can be rest assured that no sin's going to separate us. But what about if we've committed this sin that leads to death? I know a few years back, uh, we learned about this when I came to college, and I was like really freaking out. I, I was like, oh man, uh, and as I'm sure many of you have too, like I don't know if maybe I've committed this sin, right? But I realized that worrying about it is actually a good place to be, It means that we actually care. So those who commit this sin, they actually don't even really think about it. So they deny the Spirit and His work, and they don't think about it. The fact that you are wrestling with it means your heart is in the right place and that you want to please God by never committing any type of sin that would separate you from it. So the struggle with sin will always be with us while we are yet waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. But John ends this whole letter by reaffirming our stance in Christ and the boldness that we can have right now. We can have true freedom in Him. So verses 18 and 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, we know we're always going to struggle with sin, but this just said that those born of God will not keep on sinning. What what this means, though, is that those who have come to know God will not recklessly and habitually and knowingly continue to sin and make no progress in their fight. We still will sin, but the way we approach it is huge. We should be upset when we do what hurts God. So John moves on and says, you don't need to fear, though, believer in Christ, because you're protected. The evil one cannot touch you. So even though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and this evil one is the devil, that's what we're talking about, this does not mean that the world is of the evil one. It means that it's in his grip, literally just kind of lying there. So here in 1 John 5, it's interesting that we don't get any idea that the world is even struggling it's just kind of sitting in, sitting in and perhaps unconsciously unaware of, of the situation that it's in. So our, our culture at large, I think, falls into this unconscious realm. We don't, we're like, no, devil, mm-mm, not there. John's not blurring any lines, though, here. He's saying that the devil has sway in the world. And sometimes the most comfortable place is the most dangerous place. The more stagnant we are as Christians, the more happy Satan is. The more we rejoice, and the more that we're bold, and the more we worship Christ, and we love others, the more scared the devil is. Why is he scared? Because he can't stop what God's doing. He can't touch us. What is literally the worst thing that could happen? We proclaim Christ, and we're killed for it, right? And this is... This happens in our world to brothers and sisters and it is a terrible thing and we ought to grieve for it. But even in that sadness, we can know Christ is working. So I'm not trying to make light of that issue, but it does happen. So if one dies for Christ, we live joyfully forever in the glory of God. Kevin Burgess, who is a KB, as some of you might know him, he's a a rapper, he's a Christian, um, he's awesome, and he says this in one of his songs, And I'm not going to rap. I can't. Yesterday, my wife, she told me, she goes, you know, if you sing, if you sing real, I I envision that you sound like Ed Sheeran. And I was like, then I'm never going to sing real because I just want you to keep that. So I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to rap. This is what he says. He says, what are they going to do? What? Murder us? What murder does is send a surge of us to go put churches up. That's just one line. I had a little flow in there. It says, what are they going to do? What, murder us? What murder does is send a surge of us to go put churches up. So God's redemptive purposes are marching on, and the devil can't touch it. We live in exciting times. The global south, I've talked about this before, is booming in Christ's exaltation. Churches are popping up everywhere. It might seem shaky here, but it isn't stopping. And even despite the climate here, it, we're still playing in churches. The, the Acts 29 network, the, the church planting network we're a part of, continues to just be blowing up. But I think it is cool to think about the global church and the larger picture of what we have. Christ moves in a lot more places than I ever, ever think about, than we ever think about. Dr. Russell Moore, he says this about the global church. Most of Christ's body in heaven and on earth isn't white, isn't American, and has never spoken English. Think about that. So it doesn't matter if there's war, famine, political chaos, comfort and apathy in material things, individualism, Christ is working everywhere, and the devil can do nothing about it. So people often lose track so easily as to what defines them. There's a lot of identity crisis going on. People struggle with what makes them them, and John addresses this at the end of this letter, uh, talking to the Christians who might still be sometimes unsure. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So many today are defined by their jobs, their successes, their social standings. Christians, we are not defined by any of that. First and foremost, we are Christ followers. Everything else follows that. When we view our brothers and sisters, we view them in light of their stance in Christ. We do not judge on outside appearance. Jesus didn't do that. Skin color, doesn't matter. Socioeconomic status, doesn't matter. Age, doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that we're beloved by Jesus. And the way we approach one another should, in effect, overflow how, everybody that we come in contact with, right? So true followers of Christ can be free in the fact that they know God. They know Jesus, the Son of God, who is true, and that we are in Him who is true. That's what we're defined by. And when we grapple with that, we're moved to share with others. We can't help but share what we know this person who we know. I like here the word that John uses when he's talking about true. It's all uh, Athenos is what the, the word is in Greek, but that's translated true even in the ESV, but a more rich and correct meaning of the word is real. We know him who is real. And this real person, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Then it ends with quite an interesting phrase. John says, little children a title that he has not used since about the middle of the, the letter. He says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What's, it's kind of an interesting ending, I think, right? It's the only book in the Bible, I think, that would end with such a statement like that. Um, I would define an idol as anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Whenever we elevate something more or we, we, we make, anything takes precedent over God, then that's an idol, John is most likely not talking about golden statues or physical idols here in ancient Greece. Um, an idol could also mean something that's an illusion, in opposition to ultimate reality. That was the, the definition: an illusion, in opposition to ultimate reality. This is what Plato uh, means when he talks about idols in classical Greek, not in Koine Greek, which is what the Bible's written in. But there's a lot of similar cultural uh, cultural similarities. The classical Greek word for idol means shadow or phantom. But God is not a phantom. John wants us to know that we know the real God. And that what we have here in the local expression of the church represents the real global church. What we are a part of here is real, not just something we tack on to the end of the week, not just something we kind of slip in on Sundays, We're sent here into a world that lies in the power of the evil one. But we know that God is sovereign and we have nothing to fear. We're saved into a community of people on the same mission for Christ. We are free from all idols, free from the need to be successful in material things, free from the fear of man, free from anxiety and fear of our eternity and what that might bring, free to love one another and all people. Free to stand firm in what we believe, we can be certain that we can know God and are known by Him. The whole letter that we've been studying was written to encourage us. To remind us that we must stand firm in our belief and faith in Christ and that must be coupled with love. And that we can be sure that we know God and that Christ needs to be supreme in our life over any shadow or phantom idol that pops up so Christ is the true God in eternal life if you're here today and you don't know him then I pray that you are gripped by what he's done for you he offers so much he offers the greatest thing in the whole universe and that's himself he died on the cross to bridge the gap between you and him to rescue you because you can't be righteous in front of God on your own it took Christ living the perfect life you can and dying the death that you deserve. And he rose again and is coming back soon and now you may know him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you that uh, we can know you. I pray that you help us to rest in that. Um, I just ask that as we move from here, you, uh, you continue to grow your kingdom in this city. Help us to stand firm in what we believe in you. Help us to love everybody. And I just pray that to those who don't know you, that you grip their hearts um, and that you change their lives. And it's all in Christ's name that I pray, amen.